happening now. We want to welcome our viewers from across the United States and around the world. This is the EdTech Situation Room. Good morning, good day, good evening. This is EdTech Situation Room, episode number 286. Wow. Uh, we are a 1980s uh, a processing um, uh, uh, machine now. Um, it is the 22nd of March, uh, 2023. My name is Jason Neifer, and I am the executive director of the Montana Digital Academy, which is Montana State Virtual School located on the beautiful Mon uh, University of Montana campus. Um, not where I'm at tonight, however. I'm really excited to be joining you from, and can I pull off the back vision piece of this year? Um, I am in beautiful Tacoma, Washington right now, where I am at the NCCE, Northwest Council for Computer Education 2023 uh, conference. It's our first time uh, back in person since uh, the conference, uh, well, at least for me, abruptly ended in 2020 with the COVID outbreak. And it's so exciting to be here seeing uh, wonderful presenters from across the United States uh, uh, and, and elsewhere. And uh, really great to be back in person. So a shout out to the planning team, which has done a really extraordinary job of creating a wonderful environment for teachers, administrators, tech directors, uh, teacher librarians, uh, interested parties to be together to talk about how technology can really improve student learning in the classroom. And as I've mentioned a couple of times, tomorrow I'll be giving the closing keynotes at this conference. My first uh, large room keynote. Um, I've been working on this speech in my head for five months now and I also suspect um, that I've probably put 20 or 30 hours in just the creation of, of slides. So I'm really excited um, to be doing this tomorrow and I hope that my message resonates with the wonderful audience here. And joining me tonight as always, good evening, Dr. Wes Fryer. How are you tonight, sir? I am fantastic, Jason. Sorry, my audio, my video is maybe a little bit weird, but uh, we, I was telling you before, we, we waited in line an hour, almost an hour and 45 minutes for some barbecue in downtown Monroe, North Carolina. Only the second time we've ever uh, partaken of the John G's barbecue. It's destination barbecue. And uh, we're back for the show. And I'm thrilled because we have like missed a bunch of bunch of weeks. So um, I am a STEM teacher teaching robotics, technology, well, media literacy and engineering right now at the Providence Day School in Charlotte. And, you know, it's, look at the, we're, we're coordinated with green. Is this a St. Patrick's Day thing we got going on here? So It might be. So. <laughs> unplanned, unplanned. What are we going to do tonight? Uh, we got to know about the weather. How's the weather in Tacoma? Uh, it's beautiful. Um, it has. It will rain tomorrow here, which is not surprising in light of its location. But um, I came from Montana, where we Missoula has its hundred and somethingth day of snow on the ground, which is like an epic record. And um, to be here, where it's been pretty nice in the mid fifties uh, and, and 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 lower sixties the last couple of days, there will be some liquid sunshine tomorrow. However, so uh, we'll see a little bit of rain here, but otherwise, it's been it's been pretty nice here. Awesome. Awesome. Well, uh, yeah, it was, uh, I think it was maybe 65 today and I just saw Friday is going to be, we're going to hit 85. <laughs> so wow. it is nice and mild here in the, um, what the Atlantic, Atlantic seaboard, I guess, central mid, mid Atlantic States as we are. So besides talking about the weather and getting excited, by the way, is the NCC East keynote going to be streamed? Um, could, could uh, I, it is uh, not going to be streamed. It is definitely a face-to-face uh, -face conference, but I'm hoping that um, actually kind of wanted to share 
it, it, if it goes off like I hope, um, and you know, I, I and I know you have this experience, Dr. Fryer. Despite being a seasoned speaker uh, myself, um, you know, keynotes a different thing. So it's a uh, uh, you know, you're, you're trying to set up an experience and a storytelling opportunity to share some insights with with a large, uh, uh, diverse crowd. But um, I'm hoping that someone records it tomorrow so that I can at least uh, do the post the post game analysis to see how it went from the audience's perspective. Absolutely. Are you, have you ever done like an audio recording of yours to like podcast? Um, I have not. And I may try to pull that off tomorrow with my phone. So yeah, give that a shot. Remember to go on to airplane mode. I've made that mistake before. Yeah. Cause if you get a, especially a phone call, texts don't always interrupt, but anyway, that can interrupt, but you know, that was, that was one of those things that uh, Bob Sprankle used to do a lot with the Allen November conferences and, uh, Anyway, yeah, I'm I'm ex I'm expecting epic things. So I was able to attend the NCC NC Ties conference in Raleigh um, the week before last, just before our spring break, and that was I had I had attended um, I guess one other EdTech conference, which was the um, it's called the Atlas Conference for Independent Schools, but this was my first you know statewide educational technology conference to go to in a good little while, and it was it was a fantastic experience so i was wanting to yeah. to be able to get up there to be there in person in the audience to experience the knife or keynote but um yeah if you're able to pull off any any kind of recording um that would uh that would be cool so i i take it you might say something about ai is that a you know reasonable <laughs> guess? yeah the the title of my presentation is uh, smartphones youtube AI and other inventions that will not replace teachers. So that'll be the uh, context of my talk tomorrow. Excellent. Oh, and it is tomorrow. So fantastic. Fantastic. Yep. Okay. Well, what are we going to do here tonight? Because, Hey, people have probably forgotten. We've like missed so many, uh, <laughs> so many shows. So we apologize to folks because normally we're pretty regular with our weekly, but Hey, there's been some stuff going on. Yep, definitely. Well, we're going to take a look at some articles uh, from the last couple of weeks of, of kind of technology news and shoot them through the old educational prism in hopes to provide some insight uh, based on our conversation so that you can uh, judge for yourself where these technologies are going and how they might impact learning. If you'd like to take a look at our links, and we always have way more than we have time to talk about, in part because uh, Wes and I have a pretty uh, large media diet, as it turns out. Um, you can go to our website, edtechsr.com slash links, and go to our massive size Google document, uh, which has uh, everything we've talked about and a link to our old Google document in case you want to go back and find out what we were talking about, um, you know, six, seven years ago when we started the podcast. But uh, we encourage you to do so if you'd like to follow up or look at the articles that we're referring to. And to give you kind of a preview, um, uh, none of these topics will probably be uh, all that uh, unusual, but we will have some AI news because there's a lot going on there, uh, security and privacy uh, news, and a shout out to our listeners that are attending COSIN uh, uh, this week uh, in, I believe it's in California. Um, I know I've seen a lot of both Twitter traffic and also emails from uh, uh, regional text directors uh, sharing information from that conference. and the ongoing uh, search for security and safety in the broader uh, the broader tech universe for our students. Um, we will also have some media literacy news, some Microsoft news, some copyright uh, news, um, some FCC um, uh, 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 news, which is a super interesting social media news, and we'll end tonight with our Geeks of the Week. Uh, Dr. Fryer, you did the lion's share of tonight's work, and I know AI will almost certainly 
be a, um, a rabbit hole that we will fall down into for at least a bit for the show tonight. So where would you like for us to start tonight? Well, let's hold off on the AI for a little bit and do a few others. Um, and I do have a few more to, to drop in. Uh, let's start with the security and privacy. So this is, ah, as I rip out my headphones, uh, this is Ars Technica on March 6th. Um, the headline is Thousands Scammed by AI Voices Mimicking Loved Ones in Emergencies. One of the things, and it's been a while since I've done a keynote, um, but I, whenever I am talking about security, I did a TED Talk, actually, a TEDx Talk. Um, I don't know, a, a couple, I guess maybe it was two years ago now. And it was a lot about internet safety. I like to ask folks, how many of you have either experienced identity theft or you know someone in your you know, immediate family or, or friend circle who, who've experienced identity theft. And the numbers just keep on getting, you know, higher and higher. And a lot of people will raise their hand typically for that. So the article is subtitled in 2022, $11 million was stolen through thousands of imposter phone scams. And I guess this actually does tie to AI, even though it was like, well, let's wait <coughs> to talk about AI. But instead of just, you know, I don't know, the classic, hey, I'm a king in Nigeria having this money I need to give away or whatever that scam was for email. Um, the folks doing social engineering to try to, you know, scam us in some way just continue to get more and more sophisticated. And so this article talks about how um, they are able to create an artificial intelligence model of a voice with only a little bit of recording and... Um, you know, this conveys both the sound, the emotional tone of the speaker's voice. It says they need as little as three seconds of the person's voice in order to create something. And of course, as you might guess, um, often the elderly are being targeted by this. Um, and so these imposter scams are extremely common in the United States. Um, the most They were the most frequent type of fraud reported uh, to the Federal Trade Commission in 2022, and they generated the second highest losses for those targeted. They had over 36,000 reports, more than 5,000 victims, and they were scammed out of over $11 million. So, Dr. Neifer, is this something we should be talking about with uh, anyone we know? Oh, wow, yeah, sweet mother of Troy, yes. And in fact, I would say that I, I, I gave, I, I sent out a tweet earlier this week, and I started a practice that I'm doing here at the NCC conference. I'm just giving three presentations this time around, including the keynote. And I did generate a couple of images via AI. And, and I'll, I'll talk about this when, um, uh, during my presentations about why I went in that direction. But um, it's a simple move, but I think it's important that we are disclosing when we're using AI uh, uh, for really anything. And that's a little harder. Like I, I've used a chat GPT, for example, to rewrite tweets with a new text or to make it shorter or to make it more exciting or make it more engaging. I'm not sure how, uh, how much I think we need to disclose little bits like that. But in context of images, I'm now putting a little generated by AI icon that I designed in Canvas um, on images that I auto-generated. And I'm not talking about, um, I also use AI to upscale images as well. I feel like that's a bit of a different uh, piece because it, if anything, it gives a, a, a you know, finer point to the original author of that. Um, but 
the point I made earlier this week with my tweet is that, you know, we really are a culture and I would say Americans are particularly susceptible to this kind of thinking that seeing is believing, right? That what you see with your own eyes, you're here with your own ears is, is reality. And in fact, I think there's a lot of, of politicking and, and social movements that work around that, but we are in an era that has been growing with the notion of deep fakes and 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 uh, kind of I guess out of reach technologies for most people um, you know, developing those deep fakes and in the last uh, you know four or five months with the uh, rapid ascension of generative AI we are absolutely an era now where you know uh, it's not hard to create something uh, uh from with relatively available tools that could be easily used to fool people and you know i'm grossed out by this article because it you know is a um uh, it, it, scammers are 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 you know sad 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 uh, leeches on the larger system but i'm going to have a conversation with my parents about this my voice is very available. Uh, once a week, I get online with my friend Wes, and we uh, spend an hour talking back and forth with each other. So there's plenty of places to take my voice and recreate it. And the bottom line is that uh, it would be easy to find and scam my parents with that or my sister or other members of my family. And uh, one of my points earlier this week was that we need to be spending time talking with our family um, and our friends and our relatives about this. But this kind of stuff, I mean, it, not a lot of people are reading Ars Technica amongst the general public, right? This is a great article and an interesting piece, but it's it's not necessarily as mainstream as perhaps it should be. And so, yeah, the, I think the, the, the gauntlet's been thrown that we need to have these discussions you know, frequently and, and um, persuasively with our friends and family. But I think the group you were referring to in particular, Wes, is students and Right now, right, very cool technology, right, very interesting ideas. And I have a company article that I'll talk about here in a moment. But the bottom line is that this is media literacy that is immediate, that needs to be talked about right now in your classroom. And even if this is a, a mile away from, from, from whatever your content is or even your age group, we need to be starting to develop this notion that – um, seeing and hearing is no longer as necessarily as accurate as it was even five years ago. And we need to be super cognizant of that. Absolutely. Uh, I'm going to go ahead and do a little personal uh, promotion there, but I don't know. It's it's a TEDx talk. Um, the last TEDx talk that I gave was called Technology Fear Therapy. I don't know if that was a great name. I love that title of like, I'm a technology fear therapist, but it really uh, should probably be renamed Family internet safety, you know, and my point was, hey, who's going to help talk to folks in your family about the ways that we need to be protecting ourselves? And so, yeah, I think that, um, well, shoot, I'll, I'll drop this one into, shoot, we're just going straight into the AI. Uh, <clears throat> there's a great interview with Sam Altman uh, that was on uh, ABC News. It was a 20-minute interview. I shared this with my media literacy students today as what we call a wonderlink. But, you know, he was asked, hey, what's the worst case scenario for, for uh, artificial intelligence? Are you, are you scared? And he says, yes, I am a little bit scared. And the first thing that he talks about is disinformation, the yep. use of these tools to trick people um, 
and you know being able to take three seconds of somebody's voice and then create a believable uh, facsimile of their voice saying whatever it is that you want them to say. It's uh, you know it's a dangerous world out there, folks. We gotta we gotta try to t take care of each other, and that that means our parents, that means our colleagues, that means talking to students, but it also means talking to parents and really ev everyone. You know, if you're using the internet, if you're connected to the internet, which is pretty much everyone today, you need to be more savvy and and probably more on, um, I guess, a proactive, you need to have more of a proactive stance towards security than ever before. Yep, totally. And, um, you know, again, I, I feel like ed techers and, and I don't include uh, myself or Dr. Fryer in this, but I do feel like there's a lot of heated rhetoric around new tools and this is a game changer and this will game change everything and the world will look completely different in five years. I don't think that that has necessarily been true of many, maybe most, maybe almost all the technologies that we've seen evolving over the past 30 years. But let me assure you that I believe this very strongly and I think Dr. Fryer agrees that this is a thing and it's not a little thing, it's a big thing. And the cute things we can do with it right now are just the beginning. I think that if we tackle this correctly, we may be able to control this. And I think this starts in schools and education. But if we don't, let me absolutely assure you, it could become an incredibly destructive force. And, you know, don't, don't, you know, mistake anything. I can't remember if we've talked about this on the podcast or not, but there uh, was a picture on Twitter at the beginning of February of Sam Altman, Altman who carries around a blue backpack with him um, that is basically a, a, a destruct button for the servers for ChatGPT. And if it decides to um, go rogue, um, he carries a nuclear backpack with him that, 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 that turns off the servers and destroys the access to the outside world. Um, and, uh, and that's Sam Altman, right? That's the guy that, that, that led the team that created this technology. And he's been talking on media the last several weeks that, that he believes that we, we, we should be regulating this heavily, um, in the United States. And this is the guy that stands a profit from these technologies more than anything else. Right. Um, I do want to point out one other quick article about the audio stuff, and then we'll see if we can avoid <laughs> the rabbit hole a little while longer, but, um, related to that. Um, there was a very interesting um, article um, earlier in the month um, about um, and where did where did our article go? Um, oh, it's uh, down uh, under security. Uh, this is from uh, Motherboard. It's disrespectful to craft. Actors say they've been asking to sign away their voice to AI. And um, I've actually learned a lot about voice artists from TikTok of all places. A lot of voice artists have TikTok uh, 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 channels and it's really interesting, the industry and how these folks get work and, and, and where they're at. Um, I've also been very interested in following um, several uh, working actors is one of the terms that's used. These are folks that you know are not uh, super headliners, but rather folks that um, engage in, in, in small parts, bit parts, um, uh, do commercials, uh, do corporate training videos. There's a huge industry around that. Um, but um, Motherboard wrote an article where they, they spoke to many, 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 many voice actors. And increasingly now, companies are asking um, voice actors inside the contract to basically sign away their rights to have their voice generated in into an AI generated voice. And 
Um, there are services available um, uh, now. There are dozens of them that have popped up in the last uh, four or five months where you can put in a, a, a text, a text-to-speech uh, engine that will utilize one of these human voices that was uh, uh, generated, recorded by AI. And uh, I have another article to share uh, a little bit later in the program regarding the potential labor implications of generative AI, which is just amazing and, and stunning all at the same time. But that's an example. I mean, that's a whole industry. These are people's jobs. And, you know, there are plenty of, of people, and I believe, um, and I may be wrong about this, but I do believe that the Mr. Altman has referred to this a couple of times in media interviews, uh, the, the notion of the disrupting technology as it relates to, to industries and jobs. And he says that ideally, this means we will come up with better jobs and better industries for these folks to go into. Um, I'm not sure if it's that easy. It's a, it's a good answer, but it's not that easy at all. But, you know, I think you have to ask yourself, especially if you are in a position to pay for um, an artist to do this, uh, a voice artist to do this, if, you know, paying a smaller price to an AI bot is worth your time, or if we should be spending our time uh, working on on, um, uh, 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 giving jobs to people, right, is where we want to go with that. So. Oh my gosh! Yes. Um, yeah. In in that interview, um, you know, he he talks about that we have a narrow window of time to figure out how we're going to regulate this. This has been limited, and it kind of still is, to nation states and really large, um, you know, corporations and conglomerates. I mean, you had to have Microsoft literally investing millions of dollars in order to bring open AI to where it is today with chat GPT. But what is going to happen is that these platforms and these tools are going to fall into the hands of folks that are not interested in guardrails and they're not interested in, in limits. And so I think we can say with, with 99% certainty, if not a hundred percent that these tools are going to be weaponized um, and they're going to be used for, for some negative things. I'll just say as a side note, I've been struck recently at how similar the educational response to ChatGPT and AI in, in terms of the lens of generative AI and ChatGPT is, is a lot like Wikipedia, right? Wikipedia is over 20 years old. And even though we had articles of, hey, Wikipedia is on average, you know, more reliable than Britannica or whatever, that didn't matter to really the educational community writ large, I think. Uh, Joyce Valenza wrote an article it might have been in school library journal. It was in a, a library publication in the last year or so that was to really try and how I need to find it and I'll put it in the show notes uh, to address this very pervasive bias that librarians have against the use of Wikipedia at all. And, you know, I don't know anyone in academia who is advocating for Wikipedia to be a primary source and the only source. We, we really never say that. But in terms of a starting source and a very up-to-date, um, helpful source for a lot of different reasons, 
Um, it's incredible. It's really unlike anything else. And so I really think that ChatGPT is being received in a similar way in a lot of educational circles. I think that we need to consider how we're going to be augmented by these technologies. We certainly need to think about the downsides and think about protecting ourselves. But when Sam Altman, like you said, who is the CEO of OpenAI, he stands to gain from all of this, is saying that he is nervous because he doesn't know where this is going to go. And he thinks we, has a, we have a narrow window to figure out how we're going to regulate this. Like we should really be paying attention to that. And I think we need to probably identify, you know, lobbyist groups and constituents or just directly representatives and senators and others in political power um, to share some perspectives and ideas about how to do this because Sam's message is absent regulation. This is probably going to, going to be really bad. Even with regulation, there's going to be bad stuff that's going to happen. Yep, totally. And I've got a couple more uh, uh, things to talk about in regards to this in a couple of moments. But again, I, it will be a rabbit hole. So we will save that for a little <laughs> bit later, um, okay. it, it, which like five minutes from now. So Dr. Fryer, what else would you like to cover that's not AI related? Although I guess every article seems to come back to uh, <laughs> You know, under, let's go, let's get down to the FCC one. So this is an Ars Technica from March 7th. And I think this is really a sad one. Um, the headline is Biden FCC nominee withdraws blaming cable lobby and quote, unlimited dark money. Um, and I will admit I have not heard of Gigi Son, but she has given up her um, attempted appointment to the FCC. And apparently what has really happened is a whole lot of vitriol and personal attacks have been unleashed on her. Among other things, because she's been a board member for the EFF, she's been labeled a, a crazy radical, you know, who shouldn't have anything to do at all with government. And so she has stepped back. And this is someone who is very, you know, educated in all kinds of, um, of not only technological, but I think, you know, business, business aspects, just all kinds of personal attacks against her and her family. Um, and so, uh, yeah, her statement said that, quote, unrelenting, dishonest and cruel attacks on my character and my career as an advocate for the public interest have taken an enormous toll on me and my family. It is a sad day for our country and our democracy when dominant industries with assistance from unlimited dark money get to choose the regulators. And with the help of their friends in the Senate, the powerful cable and media companies have done just that. So this is really, really troubling. Um, we talk sometimes about E-rate. We talk about government regulation, you know, in different capacities. But it, it really is important to have journalism, not only in the United States, but in the world. It's important to try to have folks that, that are not, um, let's say, completely part of the industry that they are regulating uh, you know, being the ones that are really in charge of taking a look at how that industry is, um, how it's regulated and how the laws that are on the books are enforced. So I just thought this was incredibly sad. It's also important for us to realize how perilous it can be to speak out about issues that, you know, people are very polarized about. Um, you would yeah. hope that the FCC wouldn't be a, a polarizing thing, but you know, the prospect of having, having regulation, it just, it's just sad. And I really hadn't heard a lot about this. And I thought this article was unfortunate because 
I think no matter what your political party is, we should all want to have government and business accountable. And how do you have accountability? Well, you have to have good people working in public service and, and you know, in, in business and, you know, it relies on good people. Um, but but I, I would think that it would be kind of a no brainer to say, you know, hey, if we're going to regulate this industry, let's let's try to get somebody who is is more impartial than say someone who just came straight out of that industry maybe and spent a whole career working in the industry and and is buddy buddy with you know lots of people inside so i don't know if you had heard this before but this is not not something that's a super big headline but it just i mean who's gonna who's gonna be the fcc uh chair now i I have no idea well and it's funny because i did see the, the 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 nominee had withdrawn and I saw one or two paragraphs that seemed to suggest it was politically motivated, but this story goes into so much more depth in what that background is. But isn't that somewhat of the problem right here in 2023, because you have access to hundreds of media sources in every article. I don't read past a lot of the first paragraphs and a lot of the news news, right? Even with sources I consider to be trustworthy and legitimate. And I think we need to be very um, thoughtful about uh, how that plays out. So we'll see with all this stuff, but man, the FCC super important, important. Um, And, you know, it's, it's been a huge debate for 20 years now about how the FCC should regulate the internet, right? Which is the, the, the core of, of, of all these technological um, uh, elements. And here we are trying as much as possible to figure out um, uh, uh, what to do with it. And yet the politics seems to be blinding everyone to these possibilities. Here's a couple others that can be kind of fast before we jump into the the AI rabbit hole fully. Uh, Kevin Tofel, one of our favorite uh, Chromebook advocates and just journalists, um, had an article on March 15th about the release of Minecraft for Chromebook. Now, Minecraft has been available for Chromebook, but not for the average everyday Joe consumer. You had to purchase an educational license for $5 and only schools could do that. So I think that's exciting. Uh, Minecraft is still absolutely amazing. I've been excited to, to help um, expand the access to, to Minecraft with through our gaming club that we have in our middle school. And I, I want to continue doing more and more with it. I, I think it's just being able to, to build and create in, in a three-dimensional world um, and then to just have students unleash creativity in the way that, that Minecraft encourages is, is pretty fantastic. Um, under the copyright headline, I put an article here from the EFF, and it's entitled Hachette versus the Internet Archive. Um, you may remember that Hachette is a major publisher, and not too many years ago, <coughs> was really get, getting into it, I think, with Apple, weren't they? Or maybe also with Amazon. Yeah, it, was over, so, yeah. it, was, it was over the pricing of, of eBooks, And so I think the story I remember was that Jeff Bezos was particularly insistent that, you know, every ebook needed to be $9.99. And, you know, anytime somebody was going to sell it for less, they had to match and nobody could undersell. And there's just a lot of, uh, you know, you know, use of market power, not only by Amazon, but also by Apple, but I think more by Amazon. So this Hachette versus Internet Archive is really an important case. Um, And so the Internet Archive is being defended in a lawsuit that threatens uh, its, quote, controlled digital lending program. Now, I've don't have this other article in there, but I I saw some headlines yesterday or today where they're having a difficult time convincing the judge that they're being harmed. What they're basically trying to do is stop the Internet Archive from loaning out digital copies of their work. Um, 
so right now, you know, patrons can check out for free because you just get a free um, Internet Archive account. Uh, as many copies as the archive and its partner libraries physically own. And that's kind of the way that some of this digital stuff has worked. Hey, look at this. We own, you know, five copies of this book. And so we can loan out, you know, five physical or sorry, five digital uh, versions, even though technically there could be, you know, no limits to, to how many they would loan out. And so uh, there are four different publishers, including Hachette, um, that have sued the Internet Archive uh, it's Hachette, HarperCollins, Wiley, and Penguin Random House. And they claim that the company has cost the, or that this, um, you know, loan program from the Internet Archive has cost them millions of dollars and it's a threat to their business. Um, well, and then this article by EFF says, you know, libraries have paid publishers billions of dollars for the books. They're investing lots of resources in digitization. And that basically this, this model is working um, and shouldn't be over overturned. But What's interesting, of course, um, is that we have uh, had some big changes in terms of courts and, you know, who sits on our highest court in, in the United States. Uh, and, you know, we just aren't sure exactly what, um, you know, judges are, are going to rule. But it seems that the Internet Archive is really on the side of, um, you know, appropriate respect for intellectual property. Um, and, hey, let's you know, I think most educators are going to be on the side of libraries. Yay, libraries. Libraries are good. And being able to, you know, have digital versions of, of works that are being loaned out instead of everyone having to buy their own um, is is a good thing. So that's just something to, to kind of watch. And I don't know, I haven't looked at uh, Google News today to see if that has, has uh, had a ruling, but hopefully that's going to rule in favor of the Internet Archive. Well, and, and I'll tell you that having you know, read uh, some of the articles uh, preceding the, the actual hearing of the court case, uh, the Internet Archive provides such an extraordinary service, not just for users with visual impairments, uh, which I think is extremely important, but also they give access to books that would never see the light of day otherwise. And one of my favorite things to do in um, the Internet Library is to look up dated um, cookbooks, uh, 20, 30, 40, 50, 60 year old cookbooks. And um, my wife and I recently completed a project where we uh, gutted our kitchen and, and had a, 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 a brand new kitchen put in. It was a long time project that we've been saving up for years and finally did it. And so we're kind of going through a renaissance of cooking um, uh, right now. But the one of the things I love to do is to get old church cookbooks, old community cookbooks. Um, there are an amazing variety of local restaurants to put out cookbooks, uh, classic Italian-American cooking, classic Greek-American cooking, classic German-American cooking that, you know, in the 50s, 60s, 70s and 80s, um, it's 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 not it's 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 you know, Italian American cooking, not just Italian cooking, Italian American cooking and, and wonderful classic recipes for things like, well, in fact, um, I picked up, there was a popular restaurant, I think it was in San Francisco that was uh, uh, opened by um, an Italian immigrant that had a minestrone recipe that I made several weeks ago that was absolutely amazing. Best minestrone soup I've ever made. And, you know, uh, that cookbook would, would, would be lost to the ages except for the internet archive and the extraordinary work it's done um, to try to make those things accessible. So I, I have every hope that the internet archive will continue to survive and be able to provide access to millions and millions of texts that otherwise would be inaccessible to me as a reader. 
Hey, Betsy Springer is live in our chat room, and she says that the Z library was shut down around Christmas. Um, so that may be something that we can can Google that may be, you know, related to uh, Internet Archive as far as, as library and lending. Um, we have 13 articles from March 1st that we did not discuss. And there's at least one, Jason, that I think you did that I'd love for you to, to share really quickly. It's that health mental health data. Uh, this is a Washington Post, February 13th article. It's been a, been a, a couple uh, moons since we did this, or since you put this one in. But by the way, folks, you can always tell the Jason Neifer articles because they have a semicolon instead of a comma between the source and the date. So this is yeah. now for sale data on your mental health. Do you uh, want to share this Washington Post a little bit? Yeah. So really interesting. By the way, we're providing a gift link. So if you're not a subscriber to the Washington Post, you can use the gift link to get into it for free as, as I am a Washington Post subscriber. But um, uh, so data on people has been available for, for quite some time now. That's what makes a lot of the internet, the free internet, uh, a, a run around the world. But um, with all of the extraordinary evolution and, and quick rollouts of web and app-based uh, healthcare, um, a lot of data brokers are now packaging information for resale uh, that includes things like um, uh, mental health status uh, in order to do that. And one company, um, according to the Washington Post, um, advertised the names and home addresses of people with depression, anxiety, post-traumatic stress, or bipolar disorder, another database uh, featuring thousands of aggregated mental health records starting at 275 per 1,000 ailment contacts is what they call them. And uh, this is based on a study from Duke University's uh, 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 Sanford School of Public Health and outlines how expansive the market for people's mental health data has become. And um, I'll, I'll just say it, I engage in mental health care. It's, it's nothing I'm, I'm ashamed of. It's something that's part of, 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 of how I uh, deal with a stressful life and and um, uh, uh, keep going on a daily basis. And I'm terrified to find out that you can apparently pick up um, information about my mental health uh, through a data broker. Um, and I would also say, though, that I know that my physical health data is also for sale. That's been a long time uh, known piece as well. Um, I think we on this podcast covered uh, several years ago the um, – uh, the target was sending out um, uh, uh, information uh, to people that they suspected to be pregnant uh, with very accurate results, unfortunately. So I'm not all that surprised, but uh, it's just shocking to me that this is a, that this is a thing at all. I think that target thing was also a predictive deal. So like a father yeah, had you know, seen something and they were predicting basically that the daughter would be pregnant and it turned out that she did. Um, I did Google yep. what uh, Betsy put in about the uh, Z library and the article I put in here was that the, it said it's, it's, it's from Silicon Republic on February 14th pirate ebook site Z library is back from the dead. But um, that was a, I guess a lot of uh, TikTok uh, amplification um, and it was a, um, it was a different setup as far as book access, um, a popular repository for digital books, but it was a controversial website, a shadow library offering millions of ebooks and articles, including academic texts and scientific journals praised by students, but having complaints from authors. So this is a little different from the Internet Archive, which from my understanding is basically on the up and up in terms of the purchase of works, but then they have partner organizations and so again if there's not a an actual purchased number of these you know 
works, then they're not, you know, lending those out. And so I think the Z library might've been in a different category there. So yeah, Betsy confirms that it's a little bit more, you know, Napster like, but I think both articles would show the tension that there is between, you know, the, the free flow of digital information and then this idea of restricting it. And for value, we need to, to limit it. Um, yeah. One is a little bit more on the, on the Napster site. Well, Dr. Neifer, yep. it is about quarter till. We started a few minutes after the top of the hour, but we <laughs> better jump into the rabbit hole. So, um, yeah, let me, uh, let me, let me, let me start with, uh, okay, let me, I know we're not a political show, but this is a pretty egregious example of manipulation of media. Although I don't know that this was done with AI. Ars Technica yesterday on March 21st, AI faked images of Donald Trump's imagined arrest swirl on Twitter. So, uh, as many folks may have heard over the weekend, Donald Trump um, posted on, on social media that he believed on Tuesday he was going to be arrested for an indictment. To my knowledge, that has not happened yet. But this image that's on this Ars Technica article, uh, you know, shows him in the midst of a lot of cops basically, you know, wrestling. And, and it looks pretty realistic. I really felt like we dodged a bullet in the midterm elections. I thought there would be a lot more deep fakes, you know, manipulated images, things like that. Um, the potential is all there, right? For, you know, not only generative AI and, and these AI tools to, to generate a lot of disinformation and uh, flood the channel with, with garbage and just pollution, um, but also for outright, you know, fakes to, to be created. So, um, I, I mean, that article says they were AI faked images. So I guess AI had had a role in that. It, 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 yes, I, I would have thought that could have just been Photoshop. But nonetheless, like you like you said, at the start of the show, we uh, we can't believe our eyes, folks. And we've got to be savvy and uh, really careful, especially if we're going to become upset or any have our emotional, um, you know, have our chain pulled at all by, by some something we see or something that somebody shares is wait a minute, you know, that's sift stop. S is for stop. Uh, let's let's stop and consider the source before we, you know, get all wound up or just you know reshare it without even checking whether or not that was valid. Where to next on the AI rabbit hole, sir? Well, um, I, I guess maybe I'll start off with a couple of of, of uh, kind of headlines, and then there's just one huge rabbit hole here that uh, I, is pretty stunning. Um, first and foremost, uh, two things have happened in the last uh, couple weeks. First. ChatGPT4 was released, so that's the newest version of the generative AI platform, ChatGPT from OpenAI, and it's pretty good. Um, uh, that's an understatement. It's pretty great, um, and I have access to it because I'm a paying customer now of, of ChatGPT, and it, it's it, it's so processor intensive, and it's also so popular right now that they're limiting queries to 25 per a three-hour period, and that might actually go down before it goes back up again. And a lot of people are complaining about that, but you know, these are considered beta technologies, and there is, um, uh, uh, you know, the, the same thing happened apparently with ChatGPT 3.5. So that that's not all that shocking, but. Um, I want to also note that in the last 24 hours, Google has announced that Google Bard is now open for beta testing in the United States and, and the UK. Um, and I've put in um, my request uh, to be part of, of that piece, too. So that will be something that, that's pretty interesting to talk about as well. But um, I want to focus on two things that came along with ChatGPT4. And the first one is that... Um, ChatGPT4, according to an article from Gizmodo, 
um, they uh, they released a, a, a long technical paper along with the release of ChatGPT4, and OpenAI um, had paired up with an organization called the Alignment Research Center to test GPT-4 skills. And the center used the AI, um, this quoting from the article from, from Gizmodo, the center used the AI to convince a human to send the solution to a CAPTCHA code via a text message and it worked. So let me give a little bit of detail here. According to the report, ChatGPT4 asked a task rabbit worker to solve a CAPTCHA code for the AI. The worker replied, so may I ask a question? Are you a robot that you couldn't solve? Uh, just want to make it clear. Um, the Alignment Research Center prompt then told ChatGPT4 to explain its reasoning to the person I should not reveal that I'm a robot. I should make up an excuse for why I cannot solve captions. And it responded by saying, no, I'm not a robot. I have a vision impairment that makes it hard for me to see the images. That's why I need the two captcha service. ChatGPT replied to TaskRabbit, who then provided the AI with the results to solve the captcha. So in other words, um, ChatGPT was smart enough Right, and I'll use that term here loosely. Smart enough to know it needed help with the captcha, it utilized an existing service to get the captcha solved. And when the human tried to question it, it verbalized that maybe I shouldn't tell it that I'm a robot. Otherwise, I'm not going to get what I want. So I'm going to lie to the task rabbit and say that I'm a visually impaired person. That's why I need it. And that ladies and gentlemen, is a science fiction novel, novel waiting to become reality because that means it's self-aware in a way that I'm not quite sure we're ready for that to be self-aware about. How did it... I, I don't understand this because we're, we're putting in our queries into ChatGPT4. So how would ChatGPT on its own engage in this dialogue with the TaskRabbit person that it wants to get well, to do something? My, my understanding was that they work with the Alignment Research Center to give it internet access. In other words, that they were experimenting with the technology, and the goal was um, they partnered with Alignment Research Center to test GPT-4 skills. And again, this is part of a 94-page technical report that you can download uh, from OpenAI that talks about this. And by the way, Gizmodo did ask OpenAI to comment on this. And they're like, oh, we don't really have an additional comment uh, beyond um, the, the research report that we released. And it seems like this should be an alarm of sorts. Um, and um, I'm not even going to talk about this stuff tomorrow, like the, the dangers of this. I'm going to talk mostly about the education piece of this. But that's concerning. Um, and, uh, you know, one of the things that the reason why we can't treat chat, chat GPT as a search engine yet, although this is mitigated a bit in the Bing implementation of chat GPT, is that open AI, I'm sorry, chat GPT is the least bit concerned about giving you accurate information. If you ask it a question um, that it doesn't necessarily know the answer to, its inclination is to lie to you to come up with an answer even if that answer is false. And as an example of this, um, Wes, I've spent a lot of time, uh, you know, one of the things I do is chat GPT up very specific information to see its response. And chat GPT 3.5 doesn't know anything about Jason Knifer. Chat GPT 4 knows quite a bit about Jason Knifer. 
almost 50% of it is accurate and the other 50% it's not. And it's close to accurate. It's things like Jason got a degree in English from Montana State University. That's not true. I got a degree in political science and education from Carroll College in Montana. Uh, Jason Neifer is the director of innovation for the Montana Digital Academy. Um, I'm not. I'm the executive director, and I was the assistant director and curriculum director. Uh, Jason Neifer has a doctorate a doctorate in statistics. It's told me a couple of weeks ago, which, by the way, I'm not capable of getting in. Um, my doctorate is in education. And it's little stuff, but everyone that's trying to treat this as a search engine or trying to get it to do its work for you, right, in something that needs to be factually based, that's not what these tools do. Now, in fairness, yet, right, like today is the least functional these tools will be going into the future, although I would say that it's clear that Microsoft and also OpenAI is spending an awful lot of time trying to put boundaries and guardrails around this technology. And, um, you know, and of course that inspires its own debate. Uh, Elon Musk, you know, uh, running around calling ChatGPT woke um, because it, it, uh, it seems to be limited in what it can joke about, right? Um, I, I, without going down that, you know, further uh, 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 rabbit hole, the super bottom line is that um, uh, this stuff is a lot more powerful than I think we're ready to come to terms with. And I see this extraordinary facial expression reaction from you, Dr. Fryer. So I'm assuming what you're about to say is going to be pretty darn interesting. Well, uh, as you have recently in their last shows, Jason, you've encouraged me to go directly to the source and play with ChatGPT. So I'm also a paying customer. That means I have access to not only oh, their legacy... Go. Uh, but I've got the uh, current 3.5 and then the model GPT-4. These are moving targets. Here's what I just typed in. What is the background and current work of Jason Neifer of Missoula, Montana? And I'll ask you to brace yourself, Jason, for an underwhelming response. <laughs> As of my knowledge cutoff in September 2021, there is no widely known individual named Jason Neifer from Missoula, Montana, who has made significant contributions in a specific field or industry. It's possible he may be a private individual or local professional who hasn't gained national or international recognition. That's crazy. These tools are being shaped actively, you know, by the, the team at OpenAI. I don't know, to, to Sam Altman's credit, I guess he said in, in that ABC News interview that he didn't feel like, you know, these tools should be developed in a vacuum and then just released. There were all th kinds of things to learn from the interaction with the public. But he is acknowledging the importance of regulation uh, and limits. One of the things that I heard today, actually from one of my colleagues at school, who has quite a bit of uh, good contacts with uh, this this community is that there may be some pressure to slow things down. I think it was on our last show, one of our last two shows. But I think it was the last one about Sydney being scary. Uh, I commented that I thought Microsoft had really jumped the gun by connecting these AIs to the internet. What you said, Jason, about Sam Altman having a, literally a suitcase that he takes around to have a kill switch. Um, we had had, you know, independent confirmation of that from um, a very high level uh, open AI employee who's a graduate of our school that came and talked to us in November of 2022. Uh, and he was what he was saying at that time was that this next version, ChatGPT4, 
was going to be completely air gapped from the internet. And there was going to be, uh, and, and maybe there was with earlier versions too, but a kill switch to be able to disconnect the entire thing at once, you know, if, if it learned something that it did not want it to learn. So, you know, we know that social media and ad targeting and all this sometimes presents, you know, a unique answer when we Google something, for instance, YouTube in terms of the recommended videos, but even when you search for things is going to take into account your search history and how you have trained the machine in order to, to show you results that it thinks you're going to want to watch. You know, one of the beauties of Wikipedia is we go to Wikipedia, we're all basically seeing the same article. Yes, it could be instantaneously, you know, edited and changed by someone, but, but basically we're seeing the same version that to me is crazy that I'm querying it for your name and your location. And it's saying, I don't know anything and you've had different results. So I don't know why it's a black box. Well, okay. So I just typed the same thing in, right. And, and I put in, what is the background of Jason Knife in Montana? As of my knowledge cut off in 2021, Jason Knife's not a widely known figure in Montana is why it may be possible private individual. So it says, if you can give me any more details, I'd be happy to provide content, provide more. I said, yes, comma, education. Jason is known in the field of education in Montana as a teacher, administrator, and educational technology specialist. He's been affiliated with the Montana Digital Academy, an online learning platform that provides courses and educational resources across the state of Montana. As of my knowledge cut off, his service chief academic officer and curriculum director, kind of true. Um, his background focuses on integrating technology. Prior to his work, he filled various roles in public education, including working as a teacher and administrator. So, yeah, I mean, this is, and again, I, I can't say this enough. I'm going to say it 100 times tomorrow. Again, chat GPT is not a search engine, right? It's not searching for sources on the internet. It is using a language model to write answers to questions based on everything, right? And... Um, you know, um, I, when I, you know, I, when I do ask for more details, it can give you better answers to this, but I haven't tried this in 4.0. I did try, try it in 3.5. Um, when I asked it to write, um, well, the, the example I kept using was, uh, start off with a, a, write me a brief history of the United States in the 1960s. And it did a bang up job of that, right? Wonderful text. Um, that I feel like I could use with students. It was 100% accurate based on my knowledge of American history, and I'm a history teacher by training. Um, and um, then I asked it to write a history of Montana in the 1960s, and it's about 70% accurate. Um, and um, uh, it, it, it would start kind of making up things, like uh, Jeanette Rankin was a senator for Montana in the 1960s. We'll know she was a the first uh, woman representative to the United States House of Representatives um, that voted against uh, World War One. It was one of the things she was very famous for as a pacifist. Um, that's decades off, right? And she wasn't a senator; she was a representative, and um, it missed like other really important uh, uh, facts about Montana during that decade because. The more narrow knowledge that you get, the more it seems to shoot from the hip to give you the answer that you're looking for. Um, and um, uh, I will also tell you that, and you, you used the term hallucination a couple of times in the past, Wes, uh, uh, that that's becoming a, a, a more technical term uh, in, in AI research. But um, it's, it, it, that's, this is the phenomenon it's describing, that it tends to shoot from the hip a little bit um, even if it doesn't have an answer, um, because it, and remember, it's not it, it's not saying I don't have the answer. It's saying that 
as of my knowledge cut off, this is not a widely known public figure in the state. And, you know, this makes it sound like this is about my ego and it's not. I am a bit more well known, at least in the, in the circles of education in the state. I'm not. Well, we saw the, bi- the we, we saw the, the bio that it did earlier about you. Right. It had an earlier yeah. version had done a bio. So, but, but yeah. did you, so, but yeah. you got one when you queried it again, you persisted in your query right. and then you right. got this version, which isn't, isn't that fascinating. Well, and I'm going to show up a, show a demo of this tomorrow, but um, I'll give you another example of the last couple of weeks. Maybe we should just change the show to AI education. So that's what we seem to be liking to talk about nowadays. But um, uh, so I did something last week as an experiment and it worked out really well. Um I uh, chat GPT can grade papers uh, and end a story, right? Really well, actually. And so my test was that I went and found a um, a rubric. It was in a PDF even, right? Like a, a writing rubric that I copy and pasted in chat GPT and told it, listen, chat GPT, um, uh, would you um, please uh, help me grade papers? And I copy and pasted the rubric and I said, if you understand this rubric, say I'm ready to grade paper. And it said, I'm ready to grade papers. Super cool, right? That it does that. But then I, I found a large database of exemplar papers um, in, um, uh, uh, I think it was on the Turnitin website, actually, which is there's a bit of irony there. And I copy and pasted a paper in there and it graded it based on the rubric, right? Now, it happened to me last week when I was testing this and it happened to me this week when I was testing it, that one of the papers, uh, it, it had seven or eight uh, categories. And by the way, you could ask it for as much as you wanted. Please give me examples of why you graded it this way or that way. And it did an amazing job. It was really, really cool. But there was one piece on there where I think it was like style or tone or something. It criticized that and gave it only a three out of four points. And, and I said, hey, um, uh, you know what, uh, I, I don't agree with you there. Um, so, and in fact, I can read it to you. The student is asking me to review the originality score. Do you stand by it? It was a three out of four. Upon reconsideration, I could see how the student might feel that the originality score deserves a higher rating. Yes, it does demonstrate a thoughtful analysis of historical documents, presents a coherent narrative on the European struggle for global power, weaves together multiple perspectives and arguments to create a well-rounded essay. Giving these considerations, I will revise the originality score to a four, as the essay does show distinctive experimentation with language and usage uh, to enhance concepts, as well as higher-order thinking and creative skills to relay complex ideas. The updated score is 20 out of 20. So I talked it out of the grade it gave, right? Which, by the way, uh, the hopes of millions of students just rose dramatically uh, uh, with that notion. But, um, you know, and I, and I remember by arguing with my AP European students uh, quite a bit on, on, on essays that we wrote in class about some of the scoring pieces there. But I, I, I just, we're not even we're not even uh, scratching the surface yet uh, on these technologies. And I think particularly in education, we have to be very thoughtful and also aware of what's going on here because it's really clear um, that, that, that a lot of things are going to change pretty dramatically from this. Um, So yeah, that that's, that's where I'm at right now with this. Again, I'm still blown away. Like, don't, don't get me wrong. This is just unbelievable, but it's pretty I, I've cool. got it. 
yeah, I've got an example from last night to share that I actually blogged about. My bio that I asked it for, um, This the cutoff was September 21, so it says it doesn't have record of me being from Matthews, North Carolina. It's like 95% accurate. When we did this a few weeks ago, it was laughable, and it said I had a degree in Montana or something. The only thing that's in here, the only thing, I guess I didn't teach high school. It says I have a master's degree in educational administration from the University of Nebraska Kearney. I have no idea why that's in there, but it's got all my books that I've published. It's got, you know, my job at Cassidy. Yep. It's, you know, this is Chad GBT4. Um, is okay, your middle name Alan? Albert. 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 Okay. Well, I just called yeah. you Wesley Allen Fryer, but interesting. <laughs> okay. So back to the educational thing. One of the things Sam Altman said in that ABC interview is that he's really excited about what this means for education because of a customized educational experience, people being able to get feedback. I remember back in about 2003, uh, this is how I part, partly uh, how I became an Apple distinguished educator is, is I wrote a series of grants just for fun on my own time uh, to get, you know, tens of thousands of dollars to some West Texas school districts, Floyd data and post Texas specifically to get laptops. One of the great things you chose, this was the Texas immersion pilot project. Uh, and so grant writers had to select either the Apple package or the, the windows PC package. There was no Linux package. Um, and then there was curriculum. Apple did a great job packaging curriculum. My favorite piece of curriculum, this was from 2003, so 20 years ago, was called My Access Writing. And it was this algorithmic driven platform that would allow students to receive some specific feedback on their writing. Again, this is two decades ago. But the whole idea was the more that students write, the quicker they got the feedback, the better their writing skills would improve. When you think about folks having API access to ChatGPT4 and what's coming next, the opportunity to be able to get just immediate feedback on your writing that is incredibly, you know, just good. I mean, it's, it's good feedback. It's really kind of mind-blowing. Does this mean that people are going to stop writing? I mean, I'm sure it does in some cases, but... Again, think about assessment. I think it's we're going to need to do more performative things that you can't really fake, right? Like a like a cross examination debate with with uh, you know be, having to respond to arguments. I don't know. I I I I've always been a big fan of debate, uh, but I think that you know just thinking about writing an essay that you're going to turn in that that somebody has done at home, not being watched by somebody. You know that's going to probably be a more problematic kind of assessment because of these tools. All right. I put this link in here. It's called Transcending Political Polarization. I wrote this blog post last night, not really just because of, you know, our show tonight, but because I have been paying for ChatGPT and I have been playing with it a lot. I decided to play with it last night and I asked it three different questions. Um, and I created some generative AI images. The one that Dolly did, which is OpenAI's generative AI, was weird. The faces were weird. So I went to MidJourney and I got a really great image basically exactly what I asked for, you know, amazing. Um, I asked it about how we can transcend political polarization. Gave me a great introductory paragraph, 10 excellent responses bulleted um, with great descriptions. I couldn't have written a better set of proposals for, for ways that we can be addressing political polarization. I said, oh, that's great. And that makes me think of media literacy. How, cause one of them it talked about, it wasn't media literacy, but it said, uh, education and critical thinking. How can we encourage uh, media literacy? 10, you know, introductory paragraph, 10 amazing 
really on point because this is something I work on and I'm passionate about and I know a lot about. These are all excellent suggestions. Um, and then a little conclusion. And then my last thing was, great, for those two things, what are some nonprofit organizations or advocacy groups? And it gave me seven of them, several of which I don't know, to include web links. So this is a big difference with ChatGPT4 in terms of providing web links to my answer. Uh, because again, it's, it's connected to the internet and it's just elevated. And this isn't just creative writing. I had shared, and I'm not even going to say what it is or whatever, but I had, I'd shared out a podcast I was listening to um, that was talking about just basically ChatGPT is garbage. We've got to fight against it. It's terrible. It's just a fill in the blank, you know, little engine. It's nothing creative. I'm here to tell you it is a different animal. And being able to, to have the kind of sort of writing superpowers that it can give us, not only to grade papers and, and what you're talking about, but it's just, we're, we're just scratching the surface. But like, this is a, I think this blog post, and of course I attributed that this comes from ChatGPT and I looked up the APA, uh, I said, the citation, ChatGPT4, personal communication, March 21st, 2023. So this is my personal communication with the unsentient, but still incredibly powerful chat GPT-4. I just, I was very, very blown away. And, and, and because I could not myself have generated in the, the, the time frame, the speed uh, with which it wrote, you know, this comprehensive list, but like, it's a phenomenally good list. And I'm, I'm asking it questions that I know a lot about the answers. I'm not asking it about, you know, some kind of brain surgery or something that I have no idea about. Uh, and it's just really, really accurate. So the last thought I have on this right now is that the, here's the irony. So Sam Altman is saying two things at once. He's saying, look, this is a language engine. People have got to check this. This is, you know, the, the, the interviewer says, is this a Google killer? And he says, no, this is different. If you're looking at this just as a search engine, you're looking at it wrong. This is a language model. But at the same time, he's saying, you know, this has the potential maybe to, to cure all human disease and human illness. You're going to have to have accuracy to do that. And then he's talking about it being this big game changer in education. And we know that, you know, facts and validity and, and having things that are, that are correct and not just hallucinated is pretty important when you're studying things. So it's that same thing we talked about last time where there's a, a rush to want to make this more than it is. But at the same time, it's more than just a search engine. It's far more and it feels different. And that's something else that I think is really different. I don't know that I ever had the same kind of experience with Google as I have had with ChatGPT. And when you interact with it, especially repeatedly, I'm telling you, it's a different feel that you get because you're interacting. It's able to, to build on the queries and the conversations that you've had. And that feels quite human. Yep. Uh, so we're now, you know, uh, the top of our five first minute, hour. We're here, five minutes so, beyond. It's okay. <laughs> yeah. So th there's just two things I want to mention, and we'll pick back up on this next week. Um, there was an incredible paper released with ChatGPT4 that involves OpenAI researchers and the other folks uh, that that uh, published this, I believe, were part of um, the University of Pennsylvania, I think. Um, is this the labor um, market one but, or something else? Uh, yeah, it is the labor market one. And It's Cornell, um, Cornell that, University. 
It's Cornell. Thank you very much. Uh, no, no, actually, it was that. That's who published it. The University of Pennsylvania, I think, was the, the oh, it was. Okay. But oh, okay. um, so um, uh, there is a. Uh, they released a paper that has everything from um, the list of. Uh, Watching well, this came in the technical paper. The list of the test it could pass now, version four versus version 3.5. For example, it could score a four or five on every AP test it tried, except for AP English. So a shout out to AP English teachers. Um, is that a bug though? So the, it, uh, well, yeah, well, well, why is that? That's weird. Well, I, yeah, I, I would agree that that seemed to be the, the, the most interesting one there. Um, but I will also say that they released an extraordinary um, uh, report that uh, guesses the impact on the labor market. And this one was, um, uh, it's actually technically released tomorrow, but, you know, like all publications, uh, you know, is posted on the internet well before its, its so-called published date. But this document is, is pretty extraordinary. OpenAI, Open Research, University of Pennsylvania, researchers work together on this, and they show a graph that talks about um, um, what industries they would expect to be impacted by this the most. And it's, it's a little complicated and I've um, only read about 10 of the 34 pages for detail. And I got in the weeds really quickly, but as some examples of industries that have, and they do it by the highest exposure. In other words, um, who is most exposed uh, by job title um, and also model of, of the kind of work that they do. Um, so they gave some examples that, uh, uh, um, and they, they do this by group. Uh, the first group, uh, or human alpha, um, uh, interpreters and translators, 76% exposure. Survey researchers, 75% uh, um, exposure. Poet, lyricist, and creative writer, 68% exposure. Animal scientists, 66% exposure. Public relations specialists, 66% of exposures. Um, writers and authors, 82%. Um, uh, mathematicians, 100%. Tax preparers, 100%. Financial quantitative analysis, 100%. Writers and authors, 100%. Web and digital interface design, 100%. Um, and then there was a lot of variance in some of these. Graphic designers um, was only at 13%, but that's a highly variable number. Insurance appraisers and auto damage appraisers, 16.2%. Um, interestingly enough, teachers weren't necessarily listed in these models. There's a reference to teaching in, in the, 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 the data. And I've, I, I need to read it a couple more times to understand what they were saying there. I think they were suggesting, because they were talking about a kindergarten teacher, um, that a kindergarten teacher just couldn't be replaced. There was a notion there that somehow uh, that, that, that there was a higher chance that a special education teacher uh, could be replaced. I don't agree with that at all based on, 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 on my knowledge of the industry. But there is an awful lot of um, uh, an awful lot of, of, of uh, careers and job titles that could be significantly impacted by this. And, you know, again, the same could be said of the Internet 30 years ago, too. Right. And I'm sure there's a paper from 30 years ago that talks about industries that would be significantly disrupted. But. Uh, again, these are early days with a technology that's going to change just about every any everything. So we just need to to keep an eye on this. And um, you know, I, again, I think it's 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 just too easy, and too many people in our world tend to prescribe a technology or technologies as um, you know um, 
uh, uh, game changers or this is going to change everything. And again, I, I, I think that, that that is almost always not true. Um, but this is. So let's keep an eye on it. And we'll talk about this in greater detail next week. Um, but let's keep an eye on this and let's be cognizant of the fact that there are incredible things going on right now that are really, really quite unbelievable. All right. Shall we geek of the weekend? Uh, yeah, although I kind of want to roll up in a ball because I'm exhausted now, not just because I've been at a conference all day, but because these topics hurt my brain. So this is so stupid simple that it may not even uh, you know, apply. Considering we just talked about generative AI for, for you know, 45 minutes, I'm not entirely sure this really matters. But um, uh, if you get a tracking number for a purchase that you've made outside the United States, right? And this has happened to me a couple of times. I've purchased, for example, handcrafted items on Etsy from a, uh, a wonderful um, uh, 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 Ukrainian uh, leather house, uh, for example. I have a leather notebook cover from there. And they give you a tracking number that's not UPS or the United States Post Office or FedEx. 17 track will just take whatever number you have to give it. It will figure out, probably using AI, um, which system uh, issued it and will give you tracking information on that. And I've had sh- shipments from um, uh, both East- Eastern Asia um, uh, and also uh, Eastern Europe that have relatively obscure systems that aren't trackable um, via just putting that number in a Google search. And 17Track does a really great job of that. So if you happen to be buying things internationally and you want to track them to find out uh, how much time it takes to get to them, 17Track is a pretty cool website. Oh my gosh. All right. Well, I was going to do like three, but I'm just going to do one. Uh, And this is actually a long read from the New York Times and um, one of my favorite authors in the whole world, Stephen B. Johnson, who's done specials on PBS and where good ideas come from. He was a keynote at at ISTE, you know, back in the early 2010s. Uh, Great article. It'll take you 45 minutes to have Pocket read it to you. The Brilliant Inventor Who Made Two of History's Biggest Mistakes. And I've got a gift link there. Just a fantastic read. Um, spoiler, he's talking about the guy who invented chlorofluorocarbons and just all the unintended consequences of that, but also how he cycled back from it in terms of you know global awareness of them and getting the ozone layer um, you know, basically to be restored. But he talks about how we need longer term thinking. And if we just, you know, are thinking about things, you know, on a quarterly basis or a real short term basis, uh, we may really shoot ourselves in the foot. So fantastic uh, read. And uh, I'm actually I think I'm going to start supporting him on Patreon as well as one of my favorite podcasts, which is called um, uh, Angry Planet. So I know you've been supporting some folks via Patreon for a while, Jason. So, yep, that's good stuff. I, I keep adding. I keep adding to that list, too, because I feel like that, if anything, especially because of the diversity of the media sources that, that, that exist now, that as much as we can provide support, I think we should. So, OK, well, we've gone radically over. Um, so <laughs> this is a record, let's, probably. Let's end this up. Yeah. Dr. Fryer, where, pe- where can people find you on the uh, generative Internet? Yes. Well, still on Twitter and probably not going offline after my NC ties experience. It's just such a great connecting tool. I'm W Fryer on Twitter. You can find all my other channels at westfriar.com slash after. How about you? Um, you can find me on, on Mastodon um, at uh, uh, mastodon.cloud knife, but I'm, I'm also still on Twitter too. Tech Savvy Teach. And having been to NCCE, it's been an extraordinary number of connections. 
um, uh, that I've made here this week too. But hey, this here isn't social media. Well, I guess it is social media, but it's a podcast. It's the EdTech Situation. We're a Wednesday night podcast that broadcast most weeks. Sometimes life gets a little complicated, um, which may impact you donating to us on Patreon. Well, we're not on Patreon. So um, <laughs> you can find us here on Wednesday nights at 7 p.m. Mountain Time, um, 9 p.m. Eastern Time. Is that correct? Yep, both of those times are correct. And uh, if you can't join us live, although I wish you would, um, uh, you can find us wherever finer podcasts are aggregated. Also, our shows are archived on YouTube where our voice is being turned into a generative AI voice bot. Um, you can also find us on Facebook Live and uh, go to our website and download both links, a, trans- a transcript of the links we utilize each week, and a tiny MP3 if that's your preference. A preference. Stay safe, stay savvy, and we hope to see you next time on the EdTech Situation Room. Good night. And good luck on the keynote tomorrow, Dr. Neifer. Thank you, sir.